Welcome to this edition of The Prism. It's the occasional podcast where we look at contemporary issues from a Christian perspective. Now before we begin, open your Bible at Isaiah 30 and read from verse 1 down to verse 18. Pause the CD that you're listening to or pause your podcast app while you read this important passage from the Scriptures. Then keep that passage open in your Bible and we'll be looking at it later in the podcast. So in this podcast, I want to talk to you about fear. Fear is a major issue in modern society right now, especially fear brought about by willful, deliberate government propaganda. Fear deliberately worked up in society to force you to comply with government directives. The government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Let me put myself on record here. I'm not a COVID denier. How could I be? I've lost count of the number of COVID victims I've buried. I know personally some people who have suffered very greatly with this disease and others who have lost loved ones. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. The very first podcast I did on this platform is a live table talk from Bally McCashin where I totally discount the idea that there is any link between the mark of the beast and Revelation 13 and the then widely derided so-called vaccine passports. Back then, anyone who suggested that vaccine certification would be required for entry to gain certain privileges was described as a tinfoil hat-wearing wingnut. Look how that worked out. So, from my COVID-compliant studio pod here in Ballygown, for what it's worth, here's my random thoughts on fear-mongering manipulation and some practical biblical advice for those who find themselves living in fear and dread. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. I think today many people are living their lives in terrible fear. Walk into a supermarket or a town centre and watch them. See the fear in their eyes, fear in their actions, even sometimes in their words. They've been living in dread for the past year and a half. It's the fear of an illness. Yes, let's admit it's an illness that kills people and has killed people, and that's what illnesses do, by and large. More people die of cancer and heart disease than die of COVID-19. People die of the flu and other respiratory illnesses. In a bad flu year, up to 50,000 people in the UK can lose their life due to influenza. That's why the government is so keen to offer us flu vaccinations every year. People have died of and died with COVID-19. As I say, I've lost count of the number of COVID victims I've buried. But I very soon learned through experience that COVID, like other respiratory illnesses, was ending the lives of people well over the average life expectancy for this country. People who were old and frail and usually with very serious comorbidities. The people who suffer most at those funerals and those deaths were the relatives who were forbidden from spending last precious hours with their loved ones. 
people who were denied funerals, people who were denied access to cemeteries. So why were people so afraid of COVID-19, more afraid than cancer or heart disease? Well, it was no accident. There was a deliberate government tactic to make you afraid so that you will obey the government. There is a subcommittee of SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, which deals specifically and only with behavioural modification of the public. It advises the government on how to use psychology and subtle and sometimes not so subtle messaging to get the public to do what the government wants it to do. A minute from that committee's meeting in March 2020 found its way into the press. And immediately it set alarm bells ringing. It read, A substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. The perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent, using hard-hitting emotional messaging. And that's exactly what happened. The government took that committee's advice. They ramped up the fear factor. Over the past year, we have seen the biggest campaign of fear that the world has seen, I suggest, since Hitler and Nazi Germany. Sage and the government took a conscious decision to use fear to ensure that people comply with its restrictions. The government has spent hundreds of millions of our money, making it the UK's number one advertiser in 2020. Advertising and reporting converged to promote the fear of death. Overinflated estimates of death rates, derived from previously discredited computer modellers, dubious films of people dropping dead in the streets of Wuhan, medics in full hazmat gear lifting them, mass burials, none of these videos with any proven provenance whatsoever. Camera crews and reporters allowed into intensive care units to see people lying in hospital beds on ventilators without any reference to the fact that those ICU beds are often oversubscribed and that people die in ICU units every day of the week. Daily death tolls being read out in the news bulletins with no context whatsoever. No mention of the age of the victims, no reference to any comorbidities, no talk about recovery rates, sounding scary, but in fact a COVID-related death was and is the death of someone who has had a positive test within the past 28 days. If that death was in a car crash, then the death was still COVID-related. And what test? The PCR test was never invented for diagnostic purposes, and it regularly throws up false positives. The fear-mongering just went on and on and on, and it still does. Broadcasters justify a daily diet of terrifying, sensationalised and misleading stories with reference to emergency Ofcom rules introduced at the government's behest, which ban any story that might undermine compliance with the rules. The sustained drive to induce mass panic and fear of disease has succeeded. Millions of people in the UK are now incapable of thinking rationally about COVID-19. Many will embrace any painful sacrifice they are told will protect them, regardless of the evidence, and they will back repressive measures to force others to do the same. How does this work out in our daily lives, in our society? I attended a funeral in Newtonards where a young woman in her 20s, far too young to be terrified of COVID, was taking part. She was to sing a hymn. After all, public singing wasn't allowed. 
She was at the pulpit when I entered the room, and she was testing the microphone. I needed to find out where in the service and when she was singing, and what she was singing. I reached the area of the pulpit and she turned and fled. She was wearing two masks. I tried to explain that I couldn't hear what she was saying to me, but she refused to come closer, refused to unmask herself. She was absolutely terrified, terrified of getting an illness from me. Even though I explained to her that I wasn't unwell at the time. And why are we wearing masks? It's not because masks are effective in preventing transmission of a virus. The mono-narrative, the spin from the BBC and the government, is that you wear a mask for others to stop the possibility of spreading disease. But the 2020 Dan Mask study, the only scientifically controlled study into the efficacy of mask wearing, set up by a group of scientists to prove that mask wearing actually works, proved that it didn't. Proved that the preventative effects of mask wearing are negligible. The World Health Organization agreed up until late summer 2020. So did the UK government up until late summer 2020. Why did the recommendations change? Why did masks become mandatory in August 2020? It's simple. Boris Johnson even told us at the time. It wasn't for medical reasons. It was to give confidence to those who were coming out of shielding and venturing out again into the world. The government were concerned that the economy wasn't picking up quickly enough after the 2020 spring lockdown. Remember that eat out to help out time when we could eat as much as we wanted and pay half price. Because even though the shielding advice to the vulnerable had been lifted, they were still reluctant to leave home. In fact, the mask-wearing edict had a double purpose. On the one hand, it made the vulnerable people think that they were safer when they weren't, and it promoted the communitarian message that we are, quote, all in this together. Remember the slogan, we must all do it to get through it. So it's easier to manipulate people when they feel part of a group, part of the community, part of the project, part of the fight back. So the fear went on. And it created this dystopian society of dehumanised zombies walking around with their faces hidden, afraid to look at other people, everyone marked out, not as a fellow human being, but as a walking vector of disease, a potential bioterrorist. And it's not over. Far from it. Hundreds of years ago, we had lepers and people with other illnesses walking the streets ringing bells and shouting unclean, and people would avoid them like the plague. They would not be allowed inside buildings in case they contaminated others, and they'd have to sleep outside the city. They couldn't get jobs or proper food. They would beg and scavenge for their food. It was medical apartheid on a grand scale. It's exactly what the government is trying to introduce in this country, and in other countries around the world. It has even been proposed that you must have the government's vaccine in order to get a job in order to attend a nightclub or a large event, in order to get on an aeroplane, 
In France, there are riots in the streets going unreported by the mainstream media because President Macron there wants to stop you from going into supermarkets unless you have been vaccinated. You may be denied university education unless you are vaccinated. And so it goes on. It is medical apartheid. And now I'm forced to revisit my first podcast on this platform and ask myself the question, are we coming close to Revelation 13? There it says in verse 16, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score and six. So let's try to think rationally about fear, as we ought to as Christians. Fear is an emotion that is common to all mankind, and we are not excluded. Real fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of death. Fear of ill health, fear of redundancy, fear of being left alone, fear of the dark. What does the Bible say? Think of how many times the phrase, fear not, or a variation of it, appears in the biblical text. The psalmist in Psalm 46, verse 1 to 3. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed. And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Let's look for some practical biblical guidance. Not this time from the government, but from the Old Testament prophet, a man called Isaiah. So to help us with our fears, I have chosen a passage from Isaiah chapter 30. The passage I asked you to read at the start. It's an interesting passage. For Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel in a time of great national fear. Now we have to, at least on a human level, have some sympathy for Israel. They're scared witless. They're terrified. A large and powerful army is encamped on their borders and that army is very hostile indeed. They're the Assyrians, and the sheer depravity of these people who are now threatening Israel and Jerusalem itself makes the terrorists of today look like a bunch of wimps. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, are petrified with fear. What are they going to do? They're in a state of panic. In addressing the fears of the people of his day, Isaiah will help us too, for there are times when fear comes upon us. The first thing that Isaiah says to God's people about fear is don't trust in human wisdom. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 1 to 3. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, 
and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. Their great plan is revealed. Diplomacy. That's the way to get some safety, some reassurance, or so they thought. You see, there's another superpower lying just to the south, and it's called Egypt. And Egypt would have the manpower and the strategic ability to defend Israel from the terrifying Assyrians. So they sent ambassadors to see Pharaoh with gifts or bribes in the hope that he would intervene on their behalf. Would their plan work? And more importantly, what did God think of it? Well, we find out in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 1. Isaiah warns the Israelites that they are actually compounding their own iniquity. They are adding sin to sin. They want to go for help to Egypt. They are returning to the nation of bondage and enslavement and poverty from which only the Lord had been able to rescue them. It was what seemed best to them. It was their best shot at defending themselves, and they could think of nothing else. But all of human wisdom is tainted with sin. So Paul wrote, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. You see, the Israelite plan was flawed human wisdom. It was not God's wisdom. And in relying on their own faulty, sin-tainted logic, they were rejecting the very God who rescued them from bondage, instead of simply trusting the God who knows what is best. Paul wrote, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Sinful human wisdom lies at the root of all this world's false religions, even atheism. No matter what plans we devise, they will fail. Do not trust other people. They will, like those fickle Egyptians, take all the gifts and praise you can give them and then let you down. I'm sure I don't need to remind you of the smoke and the mirror tactics that is very often used by our politicians. So don't trust in human wisdom. Isaiah says instead, when you're afraid, trust God's word. In verse 12 of chapter 30, he says, Because you despise this word and trusted oppression and perversity and rely on them. Verse 13, Therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Remember this, God's word reveals God's will to us. Verse 8, Go, write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever. These Israelites had the word of God. They were without excuse. They knew what God's will for them was and they rejected God's message. Verse 9. This is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, 
and to the prophets do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. They rejected God's message, not officially of course, they were still in name Israel. They are still what we might refer to nowadays as a Christian country. No one had collected all the Bibles or forbidden anyone from reading them. No, they even liked to listen to sermons, provided the sermons were nice. Speak to us smooth things. Smooth our consciences. Tickle our ears. Don't mention anything that might trouble us or challenge us or bring conviction of sin to us. Tell us lots of wee stories and give us wee encouraging words. Today we have exactly the same problem and with plenty of professional ministers who are happy to accommodate their requests. But God's message is plain. It has always been the same. It has never changed. Look at verse 15 in Isaiah 30. For thus says the Lord God and the, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. I think when it comes to times of fear, that's a verse we ought to take very seriously. Let's look at what Isaiah is saying. He's telling us to repent. To return is to repent. To turn from sin and to turn to the Lord. To agree with God that we are hopeless, helpless sinners and that all our plans for safety and deliverance and self-sufficiency are absolutely doomed to failure. It's to reject everything of self and to depend fully upon the Lord. We are to repent and we are to trust. We are to have that simple understanding that God is true to his word, that he is trustworthy. We are to depend upon him in every circumstance of life and we are to believe. We are to have confidence that Christ has died for our sins on the cross, that it is finished, that everything that must be done has been done that God's justice has been satisfied, that our sins have all been washed away, that we've been given a right standing before God. That's all already done. Have confidence. Believe it. You are safe through Christ's death alone. God's will is always revealed in his word. And his message is plain. And his sovereignty should be respected. There's a sad response from the hearts of men when these responsibilities are shown to them. The Israelites are no different than us. Verse 15 says you would not. You said, no, we will flee in horses. Therefore you shall flee. We will flee in swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. Given the message of the gospel, the good news, the people of Isaiah's day were unwilling to come and to take the free pardon and the safety in the Lord that was being offered to them. That's always been the case. Paul could later write, there is no one that seeks after God. How can we ever be safe? We need the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to make us willing, to bring us to the place where we will yield to God and to his will, and thus be made able to come into that condition of repentance. And simple trust. 
And that's where our third helpful teaching comes in. Not only are we to not trust in human wisdom, but to trust in God's word. We are thirdly to remember God's grace. Verse 18. Therefore the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious to you. Who is this God that is telling us not to trust in our own wisdom, but to rest in him? To have quiet confidence in him. It is the very same God who is described in these verses. It is the God who is gracious. It is the God who waits for us. And how long has he waited? Look at how he deals with his wayward people. He is patient in his graciousness. I heard a story about an atheist who once said, If there is a God, let him prove himself by striking me dead right now. Nothing happened. And he turned to a friend and he said, You see, there is no God. And his friend responded, But you have only proved that he's gracious. When we turn to him and cry out for salvation, he answers our prayers. He wipes away our tears. He reveals himself to us. He gives us guidance and direction. He provides for us. He gives us a song in the night. He defeats all our foes. Our fears are dealt with in our certain day of salvation in Christ. Martin Luther wrote this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. So what is Isaiah proclaiming to the people of God in his day, and by extension to us? Simply this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6. Now that's God our Creator's way to cope with fear and dread and the anxiety of living in this world. 